Hello, and welcome to I Get That A Lot. I'm Jim Fishwick. Every episode, we hear from a special guest about their life. Specifically, about the jokes they hear over and over and over again from other people. And this week, our guest is Tara McEntee. Tara, who also goes by Tara Swadi, isn't just a good egg. She's an all-round great egg. A brilliant egg. We met through performing improv, which she does exceptionally well. But in her spare time, she also dabbles in having a day job in public health, including being part of the team leading Aotearoa New Zealand's COVID-19 response. So, you know, no big deal. I spoke to Tara in mid-November last year, while she was on a break from just about everything. We spoke about her two identities, about cookies, gifted and talented programs, squeamish doctors, grinder, landscaping, and much more to boot. A quick note for listeners outside of Aotearoa, New Zealand, there are a few Kiwi references that Tara makes which might need explaining. So IRD is the tax collection agency here, ACC is the national insurance scheme, and Shortland Street is a long-running soap set in a hospital. Boom! That's your citizenship exam covered. I'll be back at the end, but for now, here's I Get That A Lot with Tara McEntee. Um, hello, my name, uh, I have multiple names, but the name that most people in the theatre world will know me as is Tara McEntee, but my other name is Tara Swadi, and I do a serious thing and I do a silly thing. I have a serious grown-up job working in health, and I do improv comedy and improv theatre in across New Zealand, but mostly at the moment in Wellington. Are there jokes that you get about your name? Yes, both of my names. The first one being that, so my mum my is from Ireland and my dad is from Iraq and they had nothing to do with New Zealand before we moved here when I was five. So we moved here and it was fine. And then I in, was introduced to um, someone who's like a, a young Māori woman. I said, my name's Tara. And she started laughing and I was like, why is that funny? And she said, do you know what that means in Tadeo? I was like, no. And she said, it means vagina. So my parents had no clue that moving here I was going to be ridiculed by the indigenous people because my name is literally vagina. So that's a common one from indigenous people. I think they're mostly used to it now because Tara is a fairly commonish name. But yeah, that was quite shocking <laughs> the first time. Is that something that comes up with any frequency or is it just when people meet you for the first time? They usually go, do you? And I go, yes, I know. Yes, I know. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> I would have thought you'd get Tara, as in goodbye. I do get that. I get lots of variations of songs. What's the one? I can't remember it. My flatmate sings it to me all the time. He also refuses to call me Tara. He'll call me Tara or Taza or Trara or McKintree because he knows that that's not how you say it or Swadi. It's just to be as annoying as possible, say it as many times wrong as possible. I think that Tara McEntee or Tara Swati, they're not names that are like common that people hear a lot. And so I, I went through a phase in high school where all my friends called me Swati because they just liked how it sounded. And I think he's just like, his name's Michael John. So he's like, he's basic bitch. 
And and his his last name is also I'm not gonna say his last name, but his last name is also another man's name, like first man's first name. So I think he's just like I'm so basic. I just want to have some fun with a name. I don't know if this happens universally across like New Zealand and Australia primary schools, but when I was in year six, we had like a year one buddy class who we would like look after or whatever. And there was a young girl called Tara in that buddy class, and because we had the same name, we got paired up. And we could not have looked more physically different. Like, she was in year one, but was basically the same height as me. She was very tall. I was very short. She was blonde. She was pale skin. She was skinny. I'm like curly hair, dark hair, dark skin. But we were both called Tara. And I think everyone was like, isn't that a fun juxtaposition? Would you look at that? The two Taras. Couldn't be more different. Oh, chalk and cheese, the two Taras. Yeah. I think she actually now is... Also in theatre. I think she's an actress, which is, maybe it's a thing about the name. How weird. But, but it's not nominative determinism because there's nothing in the name that means star, right? Not as far as I know. In Hindi, Tara means star. And in like the Irish mythology, Tara is a place. And it's the seat of the fairy king was on the hill of Tara. So it doesn't have like a meaning as much, but it's like a common name in Ireland and a thing in Ireland, which is why my parents called me Tara because they were like, it's got some meaning in Middle Eastern cultures, but it's also got meaning in Irish cultures. Irish culture, just the one culture. <laughs> That's a bold statement in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my family might kill me for saying I that. I think they had a, a discussion about this in the 90s. <laughs> well, Southern Irish culture then. often misspell my surname Swadi as Swandri or Swandri um, and people are like are you the heir to the Swandri fortune which I wish what's the Swandri fortune oh my god Jim I forgot that you're not from New Zealand Sw- you know what a, do you know what a Swandri is it's like a brand of outdoor like farmers clothing and they have like iconically big checked typically like red and black checked overcoats and then you wear them with stubbies and gumboots yeah, so Swandra is like a quite expensive and quite well-known brand of work gear, I guess. I can't say that I know that many farmers and their fashion choices. It's definitely something that I've seen in like wanky Wellington op shops, overpriced Swandra. For quite a while, I worked in like the sexually transmitted infection space, and I would find myself often bringing up syphilis because it was what I worked on. And so around work, I got the nickname Syphilis Swati. That was good. I didn't mind it. And then my coworker, who was also working on syphilis with me, she and I were nicknamed the Syphilis Sisters. It definitely gave the wrong, the wrong impression for some people because she's like a lovely, probably fifty-year-old Greek woman. I assume that dealing with that day to day would sort of desensitize you. Uh, how does working in the field of STIs affect your non-work conversations about sex? I'm pretty frank when I talk about, I mean, even before I started working in sexual health, I was pretty frank about talking about sexual health. But I think it can sometimes be shocking when people are like, what are you doing at work at the moment? And I'm like, I'm heading up a campaign about how to use condoms or that kind of thing that people kind of go, oh, I expected you to say like writing a paper 
But I'm just like, nah, at the moment we've got this huge problem where people are on Grinder and not swapping last names. And so then we try and do sexual health contact tracing and no one knows each other's last names. So that's a genuine problem that we've got. I think most people who know me aren't surprised that that's the way I speak. <laughs> yeah, because I, I suppose like in my mind, like as soon as someone works for the government, or they work in a department, then they're in like Terry Gilliam's Brazil, like you go yeah. into an office and there's just rows and rows of desks where everyone is writing papers and they go into those tubes that go f-dum, and then yeah. they get sent to be stamped and then that is what policy and government work is. Yeah, it's basically like the scene from the producers when everyone's really unhappy and doing all of the accounting. It's like that, but I'm unhappy at stamping papers that say syphilis. <laughs> I did get a really grumpy email from um, IT being like, stop trying to access porn. I was like, I'm not trying to access porn. I'm trying to access websites that we fund. But for some reason, our firewall has said that I can't see it. <sighs> yeah. And then they were like, look at it on your phone. And I was like, that's not the point. We pay for this. What's the conversation like where you explain what you do? Like I said, I work across all sorts of communicable diseases. So depending on what person I'm talking to is what disease I'll lead with. So if it's like a sort of older person, I'll usually talk about working in like measles or meningococcal disease and then just leave the sexual health stuff until later in the conversation once they've kind of got used to that and then if it's young people I'll just be like straight into it I'll be like hey what birth control are you on hey do you take prep great (laughs) it depends what type of person I'm talking to which sounds really bad but like if I can't be bothered because I also I work in communicable diseases overall so obviously during COVID pretty much entirely my last two years have been COVID and so sometimes I'll just say oh I work for IRD and no one, no one, no one asks if they're like, oh, cool. Like I'll say IRD or ACC and then they just go, oh, okay. And and no one asks any more questions, which little secret, if you work for one of the like defense organizations or like the spy organizations in New Zealand, they tell you to say ACC or IRD. So if you ever meet someone who seems a bit sketchy and says they work for IRD or ACC, you might be a spy. Oopsies. Oh, maybe I'm the spy. I might have also just completely erased all my chances of getting a job at either of those places, but that's fine. How much do you try to keep Tara Swadi and Tara McEntee separate? Not necessarily two different people, but I do find it funny that there are probably people who know me really well who only know me as Tara McEntee, which is not my legal name and has not been my name for like 25 years of my life. It was only when I started like a professional career and then was starting to get credited with my name and then you'd Google me and the first thing that would come up would be a a stupid photo of me pulling the fingers on stage. And I went, oh, I should probably try and separate these two people. (laughs) But you don't have a clear distinction between them. No, I think they're the same person, which is probably bad for my work personality. (laughs) But fine for my theatre personality, I think. Okay, so you don't find yourself having to inject policy proposals into your shows? No, I do actively try and ignore the stuff. Like if stuff comes up that I know things about in shows or whatever, like it's a science thing, I'll actively be like, I don't know anything about this and pretend like I've no clue because I just don't... There's nothing worse than being an expert in something and then people expecting you to be an expert in that thing and also be funny. No. How about the reverse? Have your theatre skills come into play at work at all? 
Yeah, I have a few stories about how my theatre world has infiltrated my work world, some good and some bad. One of the worst ones was I did the opening show in New Zealand Improv Fest a couple of years ago, and it was on like a Tuesday, the opening night, and the next day I went into work, and I was walking in, and this lady goes, great show last night, and I was like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, this is the first time someone at work has been at a show, I had no clue who she was, and I had this like flashback moment of what I'd done during the show, and I remembered standing in the center of the stage and just just violently pulling the finger at the audience, and I can't remember why I did it, but it was just this image. I was like, oh, shit, she's going to think I'm so unprofessional. Shit. But then she was like, oh, yeah, we brought my daughter and she loved it. It was great. She's 13. I was like, she's 13. And I pulled the finger at the audience. <laughs> when I first started working, I didn't tell anyone that I did theater stuff. And slowly, slowly, I've just been like, right, look, people who I work with know me from work. They're not going to judge my work personality if I say to them I'm doing a show. And if they come and see the show and they think, you know, they're smart enough to know that like professional tarot and improv tarot, generally two different people. I wouldn't pull the finger at people in a work meeting, usually. And one team that I worked in, we did a thing where every Thursday, someone from the team would do a presentation on something. It might be something work related, but it also could be not. And one day I was like, do you know what? I'm going to do a presentation on improv skills and how they can be good and useful in the workplace. And one of the older white men in my team you can see where this is going <laughs> I gave this presentation and I was talking about like active listening and how it's so important to actually be listening to what people are saying and not just sitting there and thinking about what you're going to say next and that's how you know you do good improv scenes and that's how you can communicate with people and understand them and blah blah, blah. and then immediately after I had these guys have a conversation allegedly with me not really they were saying, yeah, and you know what? And then talking about the thing as if they were the experts in it. And I was like, am I in the twilight zone? What have I just done? What just happened? And I looked across the table at one of the other like younger people who was just kind of shaking his head and going, oh God, this is just, oh, this is like the office. God, it was horrific. So since then, I've kind of just tried to, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna keep these skills my secret, which reminds me actually of another story. An improviser in Wellington was recently talking to me about how they also worked in like a government job for a while. They were like, I used improv for evil. I would use particularly status and like Keith Johnston's status work to, you know, change my status to be the young woman in the boardroom with all these other older experienced people. And I would do the Keith Johnston status tricks, make myself bigger body language, the way you speak, blah, 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 and to raise their status in the room. And no one else knew that that's what they were doing, but then suddenly they were getting all these better opportunities and being more respected and being part of, like, the boys' club. And they were like, oh, shit, what have I done? <laughs> I've tricked them. When in your life did you know you wanted to do theatre things? And when in your life did you know that you wanted to do health-related things? Mm. I've always, since I was, <laughs> since I was like five or six, done theatre stuff, done like speech and drama. Actually, my mum reminded me the other day that my brother and I did a production when I was about seven and he was eight. It was like a play of the Pied Piper. And my brother played the flute. So he got to be the Pied Piper. And I got the part of the lame child. 
And it was just the two of you. No, 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 no. There were there were other kids. Oh, okay, right. But like, <laughs> imagine the Pied Piper and the Lame Child. No. Um. So it was me. Like it was all the kids who would like follow the Pied Piper. My brother would play the flute, and they ran off stage after him. And I was the kid on crutches, coming up behind, going, "Wait for me! Wait for me!" Which was really like hurtful casting. But yeah, so I've done theatre and performance since I was young, and then. I got into improv when I was 11 or 12, just through like high school. Christchurch has a really strong um, high school theatre sports um, program. And so I got into that with the court jesters. And then it was interesting in about year 11, 12, 13, when a lot of my friends were like going through puberty, all of the girls just sort of dropped off and stopped, stopped doing theatre sports. And they got really like self-conscious and didn't want to be on stage. And for some reason, I just, blasted through that and kept kept doing it and just didn't stop and then in terms of when I knew that I wanted to work in health it had always been like the family joke that Tara was going to be on Shortland Street because they were like you'll be a doctor and an actress I was like they're not real doctors or like oh you should be on Grey's Anatomy none of them are real doctors (laughs) but yeah so it was always this like dual my whole life it was this dual thing of I did both and I wanted to do both and I fairly successfully have maintained doing both if at times dropping one to pick up more of the other. Did you want to be a doctor specifically? It's one of those things where when you're a kid and you think of jobs you know it's like playing category category die and you go occupations doctor lawyer dentist accountant and you you say the jobs that are like one word jobs you don't say government advisor Communications specialist, like no one says that stuff. Graduate research analyst, like that's not a job that comes out of your mouth. So I was always like, yeah, I'll be a doctor because that was what healthcare was. That was what working in healthcare was, was being a doctor. And then I went to uni and I did the like foundation year to get into medicine. And I had this incredible Irish microbiology professor whose name is Frank Griffin, who first thing he said, like beginning of the year, he gets up front and he goes, now listen, class. I'm going to tell you something. I have herpes. And we were all like, okay. This this rather like white-haired, probably like 65, 70, jolly Irishman just going, I have herpes. And later on in the year, I'll show you my herpes. We were like, I'm sorry. But he was referring to the fact that he had oral herpes, okay, cold sores, and that as he got stressed further in the year and as the year got um, colder and the weather got colder and his immune system was under pressure the cold sores would come up, which it was a good example of like basic microbiology. But I was like, who is this chaotic Irish man immediately talking to a bunch of 18 year olds about herpes? I love it. (laughs) And so he got me really riled up about microbiology and medical microbiology. Um, And then I saw my brother, who's a doctor, going through medical school. I was like, that looks boring as shit. (laughs) I think that's the improviser in you coming out. Like, that looks like a lot of work. Yeah, like, you have to study, you have to learn learn things, learn lines, fuck that. Yeah, so instead of doing medicine, I went and did um, microbiology, and then I got into public health. So that's how I've got to where I am in healthcare, without having to do the six years of study of shit that you just don't use. So whether it was the doctor job specifically, or health in general, what drew you to that kind of work? My dad is a doctor, and so I'd had this idea of like, Oh yeah, doctor's a good job to have. And then 
I just always, when I was a kid, I was just very much about like helping people. And I also wasn't squeamish, which is ironic because now my, like I said, my brother is a doctor and he was so squeamish when we were kids. He, he hated blood. He once said that he wanted to be a taxi driver because he thought that that was the least likely job to see blood. Anyway, he's now training to be an anaesthetist, <laughs> which is like literally blood every day, everywhere. You just have to sit there and look at it as well. So yeah, I just was never squeamish and I was interested in health and healthcare. And, um, and then when I was 16, I was diagnosed with diabetes and I'd already been like interested in health and stuff then. But then that, I think that probably just like helped me become more and more health literate and understanding of what healthcare actually was. Is it something you told people about? I think I did probably tell people that I wanted to do medicine or I wanted to be a doctor. I guess I never felt less than by not doing it. So because what I do now is public health and public health is um, a lot of people have learned a lot more about public health through the pandemic. (laughs) But the way I've described it before is that like if health is a garden, doctors are the like landscapers. They're the ones who plant the things and look after the soil and water stuff. But public health are the designers. They're the ones who organize the whole garden so that it actually has pathways and is, you know, sprouts and is beautiful in summer as well as beautiful in winter. And it's like the sort of the architects of health and doctors are the gardeners. And with public health, what it, you know, oh, you've got me on a soapbox now, Jim, but with public health, what you do is if you're doing a good job at public health, no one knows that you've done it because it's all about prevention. So you've stopped hundreds of people getting measles you've prevented people from getting you know ischemic heart disease because you prevented obesity because you supported uh, good nutritional health programs in in school you've stopped people getting syphilis or chlamydia because you taught them about you know how to use a condom or how to do good sexual health communication in school so it's all sort of if you've done a bad job you can tell if you've done a good job you can't tell which is really annoying for someone who loves recognition <laughs> I suppose medicine and health are seen as quite serious fields that you need to be very serious to work in them. As you were growing up, was it seen as contradictory at all that you were interested in health and theatre? I think the the thing with being interested in healthcare and like a serious job as well as doing theatre is just a classic symptom of of being in the gifted streams in school. You know the ones where like there's kids who are like wonderfully creative and smart and like bright as they would be described and so people expect them to do things but then there are also kids who are usually fairly like eloquent or gregarious and like outgoing so then they get put into like theater programs or speech and drama or like any sort of performance because it's like oh your kid's outgoing well they should do performance and your kid's smart well then they should be learning things but oh hold on they want to do performance as a job oh no 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 we'll make them do both but that's just a hobby that's just a hobby a 40 hour a week extracurricular job they must have a better name for those programs now the like top stream classes or whatever but yeah I remember being in like the top streamed maths class and I hate maths I was definitely not good at it but it's just that like when you coast on just general you know, being generally smart and then you, you know, mess around in those classes, you don't really learn and then you get good grades and then it comes to adulthood. You're like, oh shit, I have to work. <laughs> I have to actually try. <laughs> I can't bang this out in half an hour. Shit.
You mentioned that you're part of the COVID response here. That must have been a uniquely draining time. I mean, if you're a house painter at the end of your working day, you don't go home to see the TV news discussing how everyone's house is being painted. Uh, I mean, how did people approach you during that time? People's behaviour around me, around pandemic stuff, has been really interesting. A lot of my friends work in theatre and often have had lots of questions or things that they want to do to be able to be safe. Uh, um, and they will come to me and they'll say, I know you don't want to talk about work. And honestly, like, it's okay. Just stop me. If I, I just have a question, but like, stop me if you, if it's annoying or if you don't want to talk about it. And I'm like, literally in the time it took you to say that you could have asked me the damn question. Just ask the freaking question. And usually it's something that I can answer pretty easily and I can help them out and that's like something that I'm more than happy to do for my friends but it's been interesting how like all the people around me have been incredibly mindful of the fact that my work day is pretty intense and they are also aware that COVID is inescapable if it's your job and everything that's going on outside of your job so um yeah people are really lovely and and kind and almost tentative around talking about it around me which yeah I mean I don't mind if you're a friend of mine right now, listen to this podcast, and you have a question, DM me. I'm more than happy to answer. A lot of people, because I, I'm taking a break at the moment, like an extended amount of leave, and I tell people I'm doing that, and the answer in the same intonation every time, oh gosh, well deserved, every time, <laughs> which is very nice. But I also know that a lot of my friends don't know what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. They don't know if I deserve this. <laughs> I could be a massive drama queen, and have done absolutely nothing and just completely fudged it. And they'd be like, wow, well-deserved. I'm like, yes, I know. I know. I've worked so hard. <laughs> have you worked any other jobs where you've gotten the same jokes over and over again? So I've worked so many jobs. I worked at Lush through high school and I would get, oh, I can't go in there. The smell gives me such a headache. Oh, people would walk past the store, like pinching their nose quite melodramatically like we were like offending them by smelling nice that was a real common one when I worked at Lush I've worked in places that smell really good I worked at Mrs Higgins the cookie shop and so I would get oh oh god oh you can't have too many of these can you and like I was 16 and quite skinny and they'd be like oh but you don't eat too many of these I'd be like oh oh girl I do and then I became diabetic <laughs> Unrelated. They were completely unrelated. But the irony of that was not lost on me. And is that the type of gig where your friends are asking you to sneak them some at the end of your shift? We would get given anything that wasn't sold at the end of the day if, not anything, but like if it was like old stock where there wasn't heaps of it left and it wasn't worth like keeping for the next day. Because the whole thing is like they're fresh baked. So, you know, yesterday's stock is kind of not ideal. So we would get occasionally like bags of 10 cookies and I would take them home and be like, what am I supposed to do with all these cookies? <laughs> And it would get like, the smell would get into my skin. So I would like get home and I wouldn't smell like cookies. And then I would get in the shower and like the steam from the shower would like steam the cookie out of my pores. Yeah, I've, I've worked so many part-time jobs in my time. I bartended a lot, especially in theatre bars. And I know it sounds really silly, but one of the main questions, because both of the theatre bars I worked at, you were allowed to have glass in the theatre. But I think that's not very common, particularly like globally. At most places, it's plastic in the theatre. And so people would say, can we take these in? And I'd be like, yes, absolutely. And then I've just realised that this story actually makes me the 
me the person who's repeating the same joke over and over. But I would be like, as long as you don't throw it at the actors if you don't like the show, and they'd all go, oh, 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 I would, this is Christchurch, I have decorum, never, I would never. I'm at the theatre, I have glass in the theatre. The theatre trusts me with glass. Oh, very posh, isn't it? Yeah, love a retail job. <laughs> The stupendous Tara McEntee. Thank you, Tara. Uh, You might also be interested to know that in her spare time, Tara makes cool and chic polymer earrings. You can see pictures of those earrings and links to buy them on her Instagram, at StaraCraftsNZ. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. While you're on Instagram, please follow us at IGetThatALotPod. And if you liked this episode, why not check out Season 1, Episode 6, Go On, Say It?, with Elaine Dick, another Wellington comedian with a serious day job. I Get That A Lot is made possible by the uber cool cats who back our Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash jimfishwick to join them and to get the goodies that come with being such an uber cool cat. Music in this and every episode is by the unparalleled Louis Zong. Check out more of his work at louiszong.com. This is the last episode in season two of I Get That A Lot. Thank you very, very much for listening. It really does mean a lot. Your appreciation and participation is the fuel that keeps this boat uh, chugging along. We'll be back in a few months with season three. We already have some great guests lined up, but if you or someone you know gets the same jokes about your name or your job or something else over and over again, please do reach out and let us know. Maybe you should be on the show. Anyway, we'll see you in a few months. Until then, dear listener, bye-bye.